If you would bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to look at Genesis 35, the, the passage that Dennis read to us in just a minute. But let's pray together first. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is eternal, that it is life-giving. We thank you that your promises that we read about today are just as, a, as true today as they were the day they were written. We pray that you would help us to see that clearly today. Uh, we confess, as we always do, as we open your word that we can't do this on our own. So we ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher today, that you would lead and guide us in all truth, that you'd be the one that teaches us, that takes the truth of your word and applies it to our hearts and our lives, that you would illuminate our minds, our hearts, that you would show us clearly who you are and what you've done and what it means for us. We pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done this morning. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, when I uh, graduated college, I went to work for an architecture firm. Uh, many of you know I've, I've said that before, but my undergraduate degree was in architecture. Uh, I was doing that for several years. Probably two years out of school, I had the great privilege of getting to go to Europe for two months. I had a really, really cool boss who let me take time off. And uh, I went and got to travel around. And so it was a really exciting time for someone who had spent a lot of time studying architecture and then working uh, for a residential architect that was big into uh, like Cotswold architecture in England and uh, Tudor style and all these really kind of old architecture. And so I get to go and see all these buildings and I traveled all around. And here I was walking every day. Uh, I, I planned my whole trip around buildings. And so every day was like I would get up in the morning and go to these places and see these buildings that I'd studied and read about and thought about before. But now they were real. And to see the, the neighborhoods they were in and that people actually used them and lived around them, it was like it just kind of made them uh, a whole new way of looking at things. And it was really, really cool to me at the time. But probably the, the most blown away I was on my entire trip, and every day was incredible, but I got towards the end and I went to Greece. I, I ended my trip in Athens, Greece for a few days. And I remember walking up to the, center, the city center in Athens. If you've ever seen a picture of Athens, at the very middle of the city is what they call the Acropolis. It's an old uh, ancient temple and ruins and all this stuff. And you study all this in architecture, classical Greek architecture, all that goes with it. And so I was making my way up to the city center, kind of going back and forth on this road. And right before I got up, I heard a guy speaking in English, and it was an American tour group. And he was explaining where he was standing, and it was just a rock off to the side. And I was kind of like, what's the... And then I, then I hear him start reading from the Bible. And he's reading Acts 17. And he's explaining that where he's standing is Mars Hill, where Paul would go and preach the gospel for the first time in Athens. And, and I wasn't expecting it. I didn't know where it was. I wasn't even looking for it. That wasn't kind of on my radar at the time. But I was blown away. All of a sudden I stopped and here I see kind of in, in the shadows of this ancient Greek temple and where the city center was and everything that happened there in Athens. That's where Paul stood and proclaimed the gospel for the first time. And it says he he spoke and he reasoned with the philosophers of the day and he explained to them how they had a, 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 a temple to the or a, a sacrifice to the unknown God. And that, that was really about Jesus and was explaining it to him. And so here was this thing that I knew. And I intellectually believed and I knew it existed, but now it was real. And it was right in front of me in a way I'd never seen it before. And it was just this really incredible experience. After that, I'd go to Corinth. I made a special trip to Corinth after that because I was so excited about kind of seeing these things. But I mentioned that this morning and I start there because what we're going to look at and talk about today in Genesis 35 is we're going to look at these 
promises that we've been hitting on in Genesis. And I want to hope to bring them close to us as that was for me standing there seeing this place. I want us as we talk about the Abrahamic covenant and what God promises and what he says for us to see that this includes us. That we're actually part of this. This is not just some promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob thousands upon thousands of years ago. But I hope that it would come down close to where we are and kind of meet us in ours. And I hope today my prayer is that when we leave that we would see it more clearly. That we would see more clearly how close God is and how he's intimately involved and how he's still working and he's still bringing about these promises that he gave so long ago. And so I want us to look at this. We've been talking about this frequently. If you've been with us, we've mentioned it several different times. We've hit on it in different aspects as we've gone through. And that's the covenant that God gives to Abraham or the Abrahamic covenant, as we call it. And we saw that way back. If you were here with us, we've been going through months now through Genesis. We saw it in Genesis 12 for the first time. And then we see it in Genesis 15. We see it a little bit in 13. We see it in 17 and 21 and 28 and here in 35. And God says it over and over and over and over again. And so one of the first things that we learn when we learn how to study our Bible is things that are repeated are often important. Right? You know that. You don't have to know anything about studying the Bible. You know that from literature. You know that from your life. The things that your wife reminds you to do over and over again are important. It's the same things you say to your kids. Right? The things that you're always telling them over and over. Because those are important things. And we see that in Scripture here with the Abrahamic covenant as God keeps coming back to this. And he gave it to Abraham multiple times. He gave it to Isaac multiple times. Now he's giving it to Jacob for the second time. He's reminding him. And so I want us to think on this picture of the Abrahamic covenant and why it's so important. I want us to think through the way it gets fulfilled. And then I want us to see how it comes down and touches where we are, how we're part of this promise that God's given That this is not just a far off thing that he promised to people a long time ago, but it actually pertains to us. And so the way I want us to look at it and the way I want us to think about the Abrahamic covenant, and we'll go back over a little bit what it is. But first of all, just what God promises. What is it that God tells Abraham and Isaac and Jacob he's going to do? Because when we put all these together, what we see is God restates it and restates it and restates it. But a lot of times they'll add other little things in there. Like today we get, Dennis read it just a second ago, and I'll read it in a second. We get that God now says to Jacob, your name is no longer Jacob, it's Israel. And he's been making this promise that I'm going to do this thing of people, land, nation, blessing, nation. And all of a sudden we get his name is Israel. And it's like uh, the unfolding promises of God of what he's doing. And we're starting to see it more clearly. And so what we're going to ask and the way we're going to look at it is just what does God promise? How is it fulfilled? Because we see throughout Scripture how God's fulfilling all these things. And there's kind of a near fulfillment that happens in Scripture that we know. But then there's a broader, fuller fulfillment that we're still waiting on. And I want us to think about how we get folded into that. And then lastly, what does that matter for us? How do we take what's told here in Scripture and how does it come to bear on our lives? And so let's just start with this big idea of what God promises And we're going to look at these few verses in Genesis 35. But let me just remind you what he's promised to Abraham. Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. God says, I'm going to bless you and your family. And then he says, I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. I'm going to uh, give you a, a land. 
I'm going to make you into a great nation, and then I'm going to bless the world through your seed. That's the four-part promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And so he said, people, land, nation, blessing. That's what God promises. And he promises it over and over and over again. And then you look here. Verse 9 of chapter 35. God appeared to Jacob again, and he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, and no longer... Your name shall be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. And so he gives this promise again. It's the Abrahamic covenant over again. The same thing that God said to Isaac, he now says to Jacob. He kind of starts to form it a little more by calling his name Israel. He starts to tell you. And so I want you just to think about this promise as he's been giving it over and over. Because if we take all of it together, and I'm not going to go back and look at each one, but if you want to look those up in 12, 13, 15, 17, 21, uh, 28, he talks about it over and over. The same promise. You can go put all of them side by side. And that's what I did this week. I was looking at all of them and thinking through what does God kind of tell us more and more as he goes. And so what you get is this picture that God says, I'm going to bless you with a great number of descendants. That's one, the people. Abraham, I'm going to give you a great number of descendants from your own body. Remember, that was a promise given to Abraham when he's 75 years old with a 65-year-old wife who was barren, who they didn't have kids until they were 190, right? And that's the promise. I'm going to give you so many descendants that you won't be able to count them. They'll be like the, the sand on the seashore. They'll be like the stars in the sky. That's what he tells them. But as you begin to read, he also starts to tell him, I'm going to give you these descendants from this seed. They're going to come from your body. But there's this other thing that's going to happen. I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. And he starts to tell that and he starts to kind of fold that in. You see that in uh, chapter 13 or 15. He starts to kind of uh, add a little more to it. There's something more than just his physical descendants that's there. But then the second part, he says, I'm going to give you a land. And in fact, he marks out and he tells them the land that he's going to give them. He says, I'm going to give it to your descendants. And it's this land in Canaan. And I'm going to mark it out. And he even tells them kind of the the dimensions of what it's going to be like. And when Abraham moves to that place, God says, look around. I'm going to give this to your descendants. But then there's still something further going on. Because not only does he say that, but then he talks about eternally giving it to his descendants forever. I'm going to give you an everlasting covenant. And so you start to go, well, what's going on there? He tells them, I'm going to give you a physical land to these physical descendants, but there's something more to it. And again, he says, and there I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And so you have the people and the land, but it seems to be bigger than just this place in Canaan. It seems to be bigger than just his physical descendants, although it includes that. And then you get to the third part. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You see that here in Genesis 35. I'm going to change your name to Israel. This is the birth of the nation of Israel right here. It's all going to come from Jacob's loins right from this. 
I'm renaming you Israel and great nation is going to come from you. And kings and kings after them are going to come from you. And he tells Jacob that. And so you start to see the very birth of this nation that God has promised. And then you have the last part. I'm going to bless the world through your seed. I'm going to bless the world through your seed in that you're going to be a great nation in this land. I'm going to give you all these wonderful things. And so he talks about it in one way. But what we've been saying over and over is through his singular offspring, God makes this promise. And he's talking of Jesus, that the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant comes together in Christ, that he's going to be the seed that comes. And so that's the four part promise. People, land, nation, and then blessing. And so I want us to think about how this is fulfilled. And in doing so and going through this exercise, one, it does a couple things. One, it helps give you a biblical theology. The Abrahamic covenant provides for us a framework for the entire Bible. It's important to understand as you read your Bible, this is one of the big themes that goes all the way through it. And so it's helpful as we read our Bible. But it also is helpful as we follow the fulfillment through to see that God keeps his promises and he's still at work. And so when we talk about how he fulfills it, start with just the people part. If you know your Bible, what will happen? And we're going to look at this. We're going to finish Genesis over the next four or five weeks as we look at Joseph's life. Jacob's son, Joseph, goes down to Egypt and with him, the whole family. And as the book of Genesis ends, there's 70 of them, 70 people. In the 70 people that comprise Israel, Jacob's family that's left, Jacob dies. And that's what there is. Seventy that went down to Egypt. And then when the Bible turns the page and you go to Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, we pick up with the story. And it's been almost 400 years. And it tells us when we what we know about the Bible and what's going on there is there's now two to three million people from Jacob. In 400 years, God protects them. And he keeps them and he blesses them and they multiply like crazy. And so I want you to think about that promise that's there and that fulfillment that God tells Abraham, this man, the singular guy, an old man with his old wife, pick up and move to this land. And I'm going to bless you greatly with descendants beyond that you can count. And we get to the beginning of Exodus and there's two to three million people that came from that one man and his barren wife that God blessed richly. And this is the beginning of Israel. And as you begin to read through your Bible, God takes this man, Moses, and he raises him up to bring this fledgling nation that's not even really a nation yet. These people, these Israelites, to bring them out of Egypt. And he does. And you see that in Exodus. And God brings them out and he begins to bless them and he begins to teach them. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the plans for a temple. He begins to Make them into a people, a holy set apart people to show the world what God's like. And you get that in Genesis. So in Genesis, we we finish, we get that in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And that's Moses's life leading them out and then becoming a people together. All the while, they're still multiplying. They're still growing in number. And so we get to that part where at the end of Deuteronomy is, is a bunch of speeches as Moses tells them all that God's done. And here they are on the edge of taking the land. And they're not quite a nation yet, but they're close. But the descendants are certainly there. Millions upon millions of people that have come from Jacob, who came from Isaac, who came from Abraham. But then we read Joshua 
And if you know the story of Joshua, Joshua takes the people into the land. They capture the land and they get it. They take the land that God told them they would take. Joshua chapter 21 says this in verse 43. The Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to do to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hand. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And so you get to the end of Joshua and you now have millions upon millions of people in this land that they've taken. People in land. God has kept his word and they've done it. This is the framework of the Bible. Right after that comes Judges. Judges is then 350 years of them not following God very well. And it's a disaster. Judges is a hard, hard book that is a mess. It's what happens when we bring in false gods and and integrate it into our worship and we don't worship the one true God. And it's a mess. But then at the end of Judges, God raises up this man, Samuel, a prophet. And he uses Samuel to bring a nation The people reject God as their king and they say, we want an earthly king. And Samuel pleads with God, says, this is a mess. And he says, no, no, that's what they want. Let them have it. But here's God's grace in the midst of our rebellion. So he gives them Saul, David, and Solomon. You get that in Kings and Chronicles and Samuel. You see their story and how this happens. And what God does in that time is he takes this nation, this fledgling nation that started from one man and his barren wife. And by the time we get to Solomon, they are the greatest nation on the face of the planet. People, land, nation, done. God does everything that he says he would do. People are coming from all over the world to see this nation and how wise Solomon is and the wealth and all they've built and all they've done and their worship and all the things that go with it. And God continues to do everything he said he would do. And then from there you read in the rest of Kings and Chronicles that after Solomon they have a series of bad kings. They don't honor God. They don't seek God. And the nation falls apart. It's split into two. And shortly after the Assyrians come in and take out half the nation, 150 years later the Babylonians come in and take out the other half and they're obliterated. And you look at this and you go, what happened? People, land, nation, God did all of it. But now it's in shambles. After that, the Greeks will come, Alexander the Great, followed by the Romans. And then that's when Jesus steps in. Israel's a footnote. They've been destroyed. They've been taken out of the land. They've been dispersed. They're a mess. And Jesus comes and everybody wants to make him king. People, land, nation. Jesus is going to be the king. And Jesus steps in the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant and he says, you've got it all wrong. I'm not going to be your earthly king. I'm going to be the king of everything. We're not going to take back this land. We're going to do something far greater. And Jesus comes to reconcile us to God by what he does. He's not thinking of just temporal earthly pieces of land in the Middle East. He's thinking of something far greater. And so he lays down his life on our behalf restoring us to God, living the life that we should have lived and we never could, taking our penalty in our place, going to the cross, laying down his life, reconciling us to God, showing that he is the king of the universe. He's the king of all things. His resurrection proves it. And that's the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And so you can look at all that and you can go, there it is. There's the picture. 
people, land, nation, ultimately the blessing of Jesus that comes through that line. You see, the nation part of what God was doing with Israel and in their worship and the temple and the Ten Commandments and all of that points to Jesus. That's what God was doing in all of it, to point you fuller to Jesus. And so you get the full picture in the Bible, the framework of the Bible of the Abrahamic covenant, that God keeps his promises. It's like it says in Joshua, God did everything he said he was going to do. And he does it all the way through. But there's a bigger part to this. See, when we get to Jesus and then we get to the New Testament and we see he is the key that unlocks all things, suddenly the Abrahamic covenant becomes much bigger. It becomes much greater than anything we saw before. Suddenly it includes us. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but all these promises, people, land, nation, blessing that God gives to this man in the Middle East thousands upon thousands of years ago includes us. And I want you to think about how that's the case. So go back to just this picture of people. God says, I'm going to bless you with a great number of descendants, but it's more than just that. Listen to what he says in chapter 15 and verse seven. So Genesis 15, verse seven, the second time he gives the Abrahamic covenant. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in the generations for an everlasting covenant, an eternal covenant to be a God to you and to your seed after you. And so the promise of the Abrahamic covenant was always a promise that God was going to be the God of the people of his people. He was getting a possession for himself. Right. He says right there, I'm going to be this everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your seed after you. Talking about Abraham and his seed. And what God's telling us in the picture there, it was always a promise about a people that would be God's possession. And we miss the fullness when we narrow it just to be ethnic Israel. Yes, they were descendants of Abraham. Yes, God used them. Yes, God welcomes Jewish ethnic Jews into his family through what Christ has done. But it was never just about that. It was always bigger than that. And it takes till Jesus comes for us to see it completely. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter three. Suddenly, this whole thing gets expanded when Jesus comes. It's no longer just this little plot of land. It's no longer just these people in this place. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 3, 26. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then listen to what Paul says. Let me remind you, a Jew. By his own description, a Jew amongst Jews. That kept all of it. And this is the way Paul sees it. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Do you hear what he says? So when God made the promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. Do you hear what the Bible says? Yes, it was his physical descendants by birth in his line, but it also now includes all those that are in Christ. He says it this way in Galatians 6, far be it for me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. How are you a new creation? By faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit at work in you is now bringing you into regenerating you, making you new. You become a new creation by faith in Christ and what he's done for you through the Holy Spirit and it's at work in you. And so Paul says, if that's the case, that neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as, as for all who walk by this rule, listen to what he says. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I want you to get this. Do you understand what Paul's saying? That when you put your faith in Christ and you become a new creation and we are all one in Christ, those divisions get dissolved and we are now the Israel of God. That's what he says. You are now part of the promise. You are part of, and I want you to get this when we read these stories. There's this old man standing in the middle of nowhere and God takes him out and he says, I'm going to bless you with so many descendants that you can't even count them. Look at the stars in the sky. Look at the sand on the seashores. I'm going to bless you with all these descendants. What Galatians tells us is that includes you. If you are in Christ and you know Jesus, that now includes you. And so when we read through in in Genesis and all these times where we get here to chapter 35 and he's telling Jacob, I'm going to do this incredible thing through to your descendants and through your body and through these ones that will come. God had us in mind as well. It's part of all that he was doing. It's a beautiful picture of how great is God's promises. That yes, he fulfilled those things in all these spots along the way. But then as Christ comes, they get bigger. What about the promise of land? He says, we're the Israel of God. We're now part of this. Heirs according to the promise. We get all those things. Well, God says, I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. I'm going to give you this land. Well, Joshua tells us he did that. The marked out land, he told them he gave them in full in Joshua. And it tells you. Chapter 21, he did everything that he said he was going to do. He kept his word. He did all of it. But there's this problem here. As we read all those places that God puts the Abrahamic covenant and reiterates it over and over and over again, he says, I'm going to give it to your people as an everlasting covenant. And I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. And so you run into this dilemma. What's what's the deal? Because God gave it to him in fullness and completely and said he did everything he was going to do in Joshua. And then they promptly lost it. They fell apart. They ignored God. They traded him for idols. And he allowed other nations to come in and and, and boot them out. And so you go, well, how is it an everlasting covenant if they lost it? In the picture that we see when you read through this, when you get to to Genesis 13 and it talks about, I'm going to give you this seed forever. I'm going to give it to my people. Well, who does Paul say is God's people? Who are heirs according to the promise? Who are the Israel of God that God makes these eternal promises to? Those that are in Jesus. I now give you this because you are in Christ, you are heirs according to the promise. So how can a promise of land be eternal? 
Well, if you know the whole story, if you know the Abrahamic covenant from the beginning to the end, what happens in Genesis or in Revelation? We get to the very end and John sees a vision that God gives them at the very end. And what does it say? Chapter 20 and 21. And I saw a new heavens and a new earth coming down. And there's a new Jerusalem. And it unites heaven and earth together forever. And there in that place, God will be their God. And there'll be no need for a son or a temple because he will be there with us. And so, yes, God made a promise to an ethnic people of a plot of land in the Middle East. But he also made a greater promise that I'm going to dwell with you forever. And so the promise of the people is not just the people that were actual descendants that were part of the nation of Israel. It includes believers today, just as the promise of land was not just that plot of land. It's the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that we will inherit in Christ. You are part of the Abrahamic covenant. It includes us and all that. And God makes that promise and invites us into it. See, in this promise, it was always much bigger. I think the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 that Abraham even knew it was much bigger. I don't know if you've noticed this, but with Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob, none of them ever actually tried to take over the land. Not once. In fact, back in Genesis 18, when he has this great victory, Abraham does as he saves Lot and he goes out and he gets them. They try to give him land as payment. And he says, no, I don't want it. Well, I think Hebrews 11 tells us why. It says that Abraham was looking for a city which has foundations of which the builder and maker is God. Abraham knew God's promise was something way bigger. Way fuller. Way grander that would come through his seed, his offspring, Jesus. The new heavens and the new earth that we get to be part of. And then you think about the nation part. Yes, God used Israel as the nation. He made them into the greatest nation on the planet. He used them to show what true worship looked like. They had the Ten Commandments, the oracles of God, as Paul says in Romans. But what does the New Testament then tell us about who the nation is? First Peter chapter 2. If you're in Christ and you're now united together in faith by what Jesus has done, he gives us this picture. You are now a holy nation, a royal priesthood. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness. You're now part of what God's doing to show what he's like. And so we get to be part of all of what God's doing and he brings it together in fullness in Jesus. And so when you put that together, people, land, nation, and then the blessing being the ultimate blessing of Jesus. I want you to see and understand this picture. God's promises are way bigger than we can fathom. We want to put them down into these little things that we can kind of hold on to and it fits in this box and this box and it's way bigger than that. And that means that you're now part of all that God's doing. You're heirs according to the promise. And so when we talk about the ways he physically does those things, people, land, nation with Israel, and then you see the fullness of it, I want you to see the faithfulness of God in doing everything that he promised. He gave them the descendants. He gave them the land. He gave them the nation. He did it. And just as he did that, so too is the new Jerusalem going to come. 
so too are we going to be God's people in his possession forever. And so wherever you are in this, I'll just confess, it's easy for me to read these stories and think of, man, that would be so awesome. That God comes down and speaks to you and he does these things and he's working in that way, but it can feel very far off. But then when I read the New Testament and I see how all of these promises find their fulfillment in Jesus and we are now part of it. The same God that spoke to Abraham in the middle of nowhere and told him I'm going to do these things is the same God that's still at work today. And we're going to be part of his incredible program of what he's doing and bringing to fruition. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. The promises of Israel are not just this little thing. They're so much greater than that. Now, I recognize as we go through this, and I'm just going to end here this morning. And I'll be clear in how I'm saying this. I'm saying that all of the promises to Israel are now the church. I believe that. I believe the Bible teaches it completely and totally and fully in every way. That God is working so much bigger than we do. You may have grown up hearing something very different to that. That God has a program for Israel and he has a program for the church and they don't intertwine. I don't believe that. I want you to know if you don't believe that and you're in this church, that's okay. You cannot believe it. Your salvation is not on that. We're not going to have disunity over that. But I would ask this. If you don't believe that, or you see that differently, or what I just said makes you go, wait a second, I don't know how that works. Let's please talk about those things together. Let's make sure that we believe what we believe based on what Scripture says and not something that maybe somebody told us a long time ago or something that we hear a politician say today or something we hear in a late-night TV show where they talk about it. Because I think the picture that we have in the Bible, and we seek to do this every single week, try to be as clear as I can, they all find their ends in Jesus. Every single bit of it. I think that's the way Jesus taught us to read our Bible. I think it's the way he unfolds his story, that it all finds his ends in him. And so know that we have an open door to talk about any of those things. We want to wrestle through those together. We would be faithful to do so in that, making sure that we know why we believe what we believe and, and having unity that's found only in Jesus and not anything else. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of your promises. I thank you that you promised these things to Abraham so many thousands of years ago, and we see your faithfulness all the way through, that you are doing the things that you promised to do, that we are seeing them unfold right in front of us. We thank you that we are accepted because of what Christ has done. We thank you that our identity is rooted and grounded in Jesus and nothing else. I pray that we would see today whatever it is we're dealing with, whatever struggles or hardships or frustrations that are coming into our life, that we would see so clearly that you are the same God that was at work in Abraham's life and in Jacob's life, that's in work in our life today, that our hope would be in you, in your word and your promises. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.